in the Old Testament. They did not get it back until David got it back some almost 40 years later. And, uh, but they continued the practice of the law of Moses without the Ark of Covenant. And that's interesting to me. They learned how to have church without the presence of God. That's a great Bible lesson for all of us to learn. There's more Christian people on this planet, Christian people, that I doubt if they engage God more than five minutes a week, if that much. But they profess to be Christians. Um, When David did get the Ark of the Covenant back, and we'll talk a little bit about that in just a few moments, it was not immediately reunited with the tabernacle of Moses either. Come to that in just a few minutes. So that was a brief uh, review of our Bible lesson last Wednesday night. I'm going to ask you all to do your best to, to pay attention. I know I may have a tendency to put some of you to sleep, hopefully not permanently. <clears throat> have you ever thought about that terminology, the preacher put me to sleep? Well, you can go to the vet and get put to sleep. Either way, uh, we talk about our animals being put to sleep. as has a different connotation, thank God. Um, <clears throat> but I will ask you to limit your texting and Facebooking, Twitter, all of that during Bible study, if you can limit that. I'd appreciate it. If you wouldn't do it at all, it'd even be more appreciated. But lend me your ear for the next little while as we talk about the Tabernacle of David. By way of review, um, after David conquered Jerusalem and made it to the capital of, and, and made Jerusalem the capital of Israel, he soon decided to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of Jerusalem with him. This would be for the first time in a century that the Ark was brought back to where it belonged the first time in a hundred years. It was in the midst of Israel, and for the first time ever, it was now residing in Jerusalem. It had never been there before David brought it into Jerusalem when he danced with all of his might. It's the first time the Ark of Covenant had ever been in Jerusalem. The tent which David had pitched for it, according to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 17, and 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 1, was the first sanctuary that Israel had ever established in Jerusalem. And from my research and study, what you're seeing on the screen was about what the tent David built for the Ark of Covenant amounted to. This is what convicted him. And he went to Nathan and he said, Why do I live in a plush housing and what have you, and the presence of God lives in a tent? Um, This is what motivated that statement. But it was the first sanctuary Israel ever established in Jerusalem, and it was under King David. It was the only place of worship ever set up on Mount Zion. So throughout David's reign, the ark remained in this tent, and David organized the Levites to worship there. David reigned for 40 years in Israel, and um, this is where the ark stayed from the time he brought it back into Jerusalem until Solomon's temple was built, this is where it stayed. 
So notice with me again tonight. David brought the ark to the top of Mount Zion, built this little tent, put the ark underneath it. Meanwhile, the Mosaic tabernacle, the, what we call the tabernacle of Moses, without the ark, even after Israel was in possession of the ark of covenant, it still was not integrated back into their way of worship as the law of Moses had commanded them to do. I find that amazing. I don't know if you do or not, but it really amazes me. I can understand them worshiping God and trying to worship God without the ark when the Philistines had it. But now they've got it back, and it's still not reunited with the, the tabernacle of Moses. That's just, it, 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 it's mind-boggling to me. And this is what makes it even more interesting. While the ark is in this tent on top of Mount Zion... The tabernacle of Moses, without the ark, continues to operate in Gibeon, which is only about seven miles from Jerusalem. It wasn't like it was across the sea. It was seven miles away, and I understand that seven miles of travel back in those days was pretty brutal, but it was doable. So, but eventually the ark was reunited with the rest of the tabernacle furniture in the temple of Solomon long after the death of David. So these are just some interesting things that is behind the story of the tabernacle of David that I hope to you, understanding the basis of it, you'll, you'll have a little more appreciation of it. I've come to believe in my hours of study and, and devotion to this subject that David's reorganization of worship at the tabernacle in Jerusalem was based was based on the tabernacle of Moses, the ceremonial law. I believe it was still based on that, but it was, however, a huge, expansive, and creative application of the law, and it never ceased not to be an application of the law of Moses. This was literally a revolution in the way David conducted church services. I want everybody to understand here tonight, in the law of Moses, when they would sacrifice their animals in the Old Testament, and I hope most of you are familiar with that tonight, there was no sound, there was no worship, there was no words. It was quiet solemnity. It was quiet reverence. No one said anything. And all of a sudden, you go from not a word being said in church to choirs and instruments and stringed instruments to no animal sacrifice. Their whole, David's whole application of the law of Moses was mind-boggling to the Jewish people. I'm going to pretty much take the liberty tonight to say what I want to say. I do understand that you can visit this church, you can attend this church, and you're going to hear a musical, worshipful presentation. You can go to a church down the street and it'll be completely different. You can go to a church across town, it's going to be completely different. But it's all meant to worship and edify God, or at least 
you want to think it that way. But I have gone places where it's just over the top. Maybe some people visit Grace and think our worship set is just over the top, and they're uncomfortable with it. But when you're accustomed to worshiping God a certain way, would liturgical be okay to use that word? It's the way it's planned. It's the way it's it's presented. Um, It's the process, by the way, you present yourself to God and God presents himself to you. It's a church service. They were accustomed to one particular way for hundreds of years. This is the way my grandparents worshipped. This is the way my great-great-grandparents worshipped. And all of a sudden, here comes David, and in one stroke of kingly, priestly, and prophetical authority, he changes everything. But there's a hitch to it, and we'll come to that in just a moment. So David's revolution in worship, his, he, he changed everything. It provides for us a, a canonical illustration, a biblical illustration, of how the law was applied in liturgical matters. David wanted to show the people of Israel that your form of worship under the law of Moses got the job done. It rolled your sin ahead for one year, it got the job done. But there's a whole other component of it that's missing. There was no worship in it. Its process, its typology, all the mechanics that was involved in the law of Moses was simply to keep them right with God and to keep their sin rolled ahead for a year. But David got a revelation somewhere. I don't know where it came from, and I haven't been able to find a scripture that says where it came from. I have a feeling it came when he was on the backside of the desert taking care of his his daddy's sheep. But he got a revelation somewhere that if God is going to set up all of this process for us to have our sin rolled ahead for a year, we need to do something for him. That's a huge revelation. Instead of coming to church every Sunday, hoping you're living for God in such a way that on that one day of atonement every year, that God's happy enough with us, okay, and he'll roll our sin ahead one more time. People live for God at that level pretty much in our current day. As long as I can come to church and repent and pray through on Sunday, I'm good for the week. And they never go to that next level where not only do they worship God at church in a liturgy setting, in a, a planned process of music playing, guitars, drums, all of that playing and the praise team singing, but they take it to another level. They worship God in their life, their lifestyle. Everything they do is as unto the Lord. David had that revelation. Let's take the law of Moses and let's apply this sacrifice. It's all built around sacrifice. It's built around shedding of blood. It's built around animals dying. It's built around all. Let's take it to another level where we can give to God something out of us rather than something out of our yard by way of an animal. Let's give him something. And the Bible calls it the sacrifice of praise. That ain't real earth-moving to us because we've praised God virtually all of our lives. Those of you that's been in and around church, so it's not a big deal. 
but to a fellow that's grew up with his daddy and his brothers and all of their background in Jewish history and the knowledge of the law of Moses, David brought something to the religious scene that was mind-blowing. And it gave them an edge with God that they never had. It was called praise. It's called worship. And I want to tell everybody in this building, you can get lazy and you can get lethargic and you can get traditional. You can get lukewarm. You can get cultural. Whatever you want to put in that blank and hold your praise back. But when you do, you're taking a gun, figuratively speaking, and shooting yourself in the foot. There's more merit in praise and worship than what we have ever could get our head around. And if we'd be more praise-based than need-based, you'd get a whole lot further in your relationship with God. Everybody say amen. Okay, so David's revelation, if you will, provides an illustration of how the law was applied in church, in the process of church. And you see that the church's sacrifice of praise grew out of an application of the law of Moses or Levitical law. So I have some questions about all of this, and I'm striving for the answers. And if I get them, I'll share them with you. But David's system of worship is also important for understanding redemptive history. The hope of Israel is expressed by the prophets and the fulfillment of this hope in the early church. So here's the questions that I have with the redemptive logic of Israel history. Why did God set up his house in Jerusalem in this particular way? Why did God allow David to do that? when the, law of the tabernacle of Moses was seven miles northwest in Gibeon. Why did God allow it? I can't find the answer to that question. Why didn't God just decide to move smoothly in the transition from the tabernacle of Moses to the tabernacle of Solomon? Why did worship have to be split? Why did God have to take, allow the ark to be in one place when the tabernacle was in the other? My short, off-the-top-of-my-head answer to that is because God is not going to be tied down to a place. He's not going to be tied down to a ritual. He's not going to attach himself to a routine. He's not going to attach himself to a tradition. He's not going to attach himself to a culture. All of those things I just said, if they're ever going to work in anybody's mind, that has to be attached to God, not God to it. We have to have God on his terms, not ours. Everybody say amen. So why tear the tabernacle apart first? Why separate the ark from the tabernacle of Moses for more than a century? Why set up an ark shrine, if you will, on the top of Mount Zion for a whole generation before bringing the rest of the sanctuary to the, to the capital city? I don't have the answer to all these questions, but I'm sure that God had a meaning and purpose in mind when he did it. But in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, it, 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 and, and the scripture setting that we discussed in the book of Acts chapter 15 that James used at the Council of Jerusalem, it makes it clear that the tabernacle of David was typologically significant. It was going to be a type of something. It's very clear. God's not wasting his time with the, the tabernacle of David thing. So I argue in chapter 5 that Amos prophesied the, the restoration of David's form of worship. He prophesied David's form of worship as well as the restoration of David's kingdom. You folks, you have to understand this. David wasn't just setting up an order of worship 
just to please God. But God was directing him. God was showing him the way. God was guiding his footsteps. God wanted David to perfect praise, if you will, to, to establish the kingdom of David. The kingdom of David would be forever attached at the hip, if you will, to God's divine art of worship. In other words, if you want more than just a church and you want to elevate the kingdom of God, you have to learn the divine art of worship. You can have church without God. That's been established. But you can't have a kingdom without God. Now, fast forward with me to the New Testament. When Jesus came riding in on the donkey at what we call the triumphal entry, and the people were praising God and worshiping God, and they taking their coats off and casting palm branches and willow branches in the donkey. Y'all remember all of that? And the, the Pharisees said, Tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus said, If these hold their peace, the rocks are going to worship. The kingdom of God came to them that day. And it cannot come without worship and praising God. God inhabits. And James recognized that in Acts chapter 15. So he wanted to make sure that if we're going to bring back the worship of David, then we have to be prepared for the kingdom of God. And Paul caught on to it later when he said, I believe it's in Romans, that the, the, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. So if you want the Holy Ghost, if you want to be enveloped by the Holy Ghost, it begins at repentance and it ends on worship. Well, its its importance is even more evident when we recall that the tabernacle of David was the only sanctuary ever established on Mount Zion. After Solomon built the temple, he transferred the Ark of Covenant from Mount Zion to Mount Moriah, and in so doing, he transferred Zion and all its associations to the temple, to Solomon's temple. So the original significance of Zion was not lost. Solomon never changed this custom that David established. He never changed it. The application of Zion language to the temple was an extension of the tabernacle of David to be used in this new temple system. In short, David's tabernacle on Zion was somehow more fundamental to Israel's worship life and future than the temple system. Notice, the prophets always use the language in the Bible of Zion to describe the future restoration of Jerusalem. Never once did an Old Testament prophet prophet announce that Moriah would be raised up to be chief among the mountains. It was always Zion, because that's where the divine order of worship was established, and Israel still has not lost view of that. So watch this. I've talked to you that, I've taught you that the Philistines captured the Ark of Covenant under Saul, they kept, held it captive for a number of years. Israel would go to war with them, fought with them, fought with them. Never could really get it back because Saul was too occupied in chasing David around trying to kill him. David comes to the throne, 40, Saul reigned 40 years. David reigned 40, Solomon reigned 40. David finally comes to the throne, brings the ark back. I find it interesting that after the ark had not been present because of Philistine, uh, Philistine captivity 
And then after the Jews got it back, it still wasn't present in the tabernacle. They had church without God all these years, got used to it, I guess. But it's interesting to me that when they finally brought back the Ark of Covenant and reunited it with the tabernacle furniture on the day that Solomon's temple was dedicated, the Bible said there was a great cloud there and the priest could not do what? Everybody say minister as you answer that question. I thought everybody would know that. Minister. When it was all brought back together, when the ark was in its rightful place in Jerusalem and the tabernacle of Moses was brought to Jerusalem, God continued to allow Israel to have his presence not only manifested in that piece of furniture, but in a cloud that prohibited the priest to minister. Now, here's my thoughts on that. You know how sometimes, and I I think we lack maturity sometimes spiritually when we're in the presence of God, and and it it makes us feel real good, and we almost get flippant about it. Uh, Brother Merrill and I just had a short conversation before church that, you know, people, when you have those services where the power of God moves in and you don't have preaching, and people will invariably walk up to the speaker, whether it's me or someone else, and say, boy, that's a great message, ha, 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 ha. You've missed the whole point. For once, and it don't happen nearly enough, but for that Sunday, somehow or another, I worship, kiss God on the mouth, and God's presence came down, and the preacher couldn't preach. As a matter of fact, on that particular Sunday, the preacher didn't need to. And if we could absorb that moment and let it only develop in us a greater appetite for more of that. You don't leave that service saying, man, I got my need met today. I got to run the aisles today. Man, I got out in the aisle and danced today. It ain't about you and what you did. If anything, walk out of here saying, I can't wait till it happens again. Oh, God, let your presence fall like that again. God, I'm going to come back next Sunday and I'm going to worship more. I'm going to praise you more. You see how our minds sometimes are steered in a direction. It's almost like, y'all excuse me, we're adults in here tonight, but it's almost like being intimate with your spouse, and all of a sudden it becomes about you and not them. And they're like, okay, well, what did I have to do in this equation? Did you even notice that I was a part of it? That's why God... We somehow have to open our arms and minds to him and make this all about him and not us. I'm just here to make him happy. And if we develop that mindset, then God starts pouring out blessing in our life. And there's more and more that comes to our lives than what we can dream and even plan for. It's just the way that God works. So I'll have you notice tonight that all the prophecy about Israel from that point on was always focused on David, not Solomon. And it was always focused on Zion, not Moriah. Because God always goes back to that place where divine art of worship was established. And if you ever want to meet me, that's where you have to go to. And that's how you got to do it. So, with that in mind, I'd like to spend about the past 20, or the next 25 minutes and showing you expressions of worship that are biblical. 
that God wants out of us. With the, the right attitude and the right spirit, this is what God wants out of us, not just when we're in church, but every day of our life. Paul said, know you not that you, your body is a temple that he feels. We're a living sacrifice. Everything we do as, is un, unto the Lord. This is why I struggle. If people would understand this concept, intimacy with God would not be an issue. Prayer life wouldn't be an issue. Living holy wouldn't be an issue because everything you do is to please him. And the more you do that, the more he loves you back. And we've all learned that you can never outgive God. So my motive tonight, as I said earlier, is not to change the way we worship, but to change the why we worship. That's what I've come to do tonight and for the next couple of Wednesday nights because I'll not finish this tonight. We do not worship the way we worship because it's a tradition. We need to get that out of our head. We don't do this in church just because it's a tradition. We don't do this in church because everyone else is doing it. We don't do this in church because the speaker says, let's give the Lord a, a, hand, a hand break. That's not why. And if we could get our head around the why, then our whole relationship with God opens up and brings us literally to another level. <clears throat> Early on in this Bible study tonight, and I don't mean to be offensive to anybody, and I just, I'm going to use this little video clip as an illustration, and it's not pointing a finger at anybody. If you walk out of here and say, he's talking to me, or you go to someone and say, boy, he nailed you the other night. You're a child, you're immature, and you're ignorant because that's not what I'm doing. Did I communicate that okay? Did y'all get your head around that? This is just for fun. I'm, I'm going way out on a limb to do this, but it illustrates the point. The first thing I want to mention in an expression of worship is that David established the ministry of the singers and singing. David appointed. He appointed. They didn't volunteer. He appointed them. People from the tribe of Levi, the Levites, to be singers in the tabernacle of David. I want to tell you folks here as honestly as I can and as kindly as I can, we have a wonderful music program, but we're careful about who sings. And here's why. Everybody that sings up here holds a microphone. Y'all understand that? Do I need to continue? Somebody came to Sister Murphy several years ago and said, I want to sing the praise team. And she said, well, can you sing? And they said, no. And so what do you want me to do? This is why we have a, a, a committee. It's a committee of three people that if you want to sing in our praise team, you come try out. And if they feel like you can sing at a certain level, they'll say, yes, you can. And if they say they don't think you can, as kindly as they can, they'll tell you that we'll try to redirect you to another ministry in the church. We try to be as kind as we can, but here's why we do what we do. detected a little black note there. 
Any questions? <clears throat> That's the best way I could use to illustrate. So uh, I do understand that, uh, you know, the Bible says to make a joyful noise, but the Bible did not say do that with a microphone in your hand. And uh, so that's why we are working hard on our music program. Uh, Casey is spending untold hours. We're training we're, they're spending hours of practice and preparation, planning, what have you, because we believe that God is worthy of the very best sound that we can give him. Now, some folks, you may be inclined to disagree with that, but I don't know that God would, and I know the congregation would be real happy if you had Don not singing in your praise team with a microphone in his hand. Everybody okay with that? Uh, I'm getting that stare, man, that just paralyzes me sometimes. Thought I'd put something cute on the screen and what have you, but anyway. But David appointed singers and singing. He determined the singer, and he determined the song. It was all under the parameter of his vision, it was, all under the, it was all within the parameter of his purpose of worshiping and elevating God to the level that he believed that God was worthy of. The ministry of the singers and the song of the Lord was very prominent in the tabernacle of David. No singers ever sang at the tabernacle of Moses. It was all quiet, hush-hush. So singing is a ministry it's an expression of ministry that we don't give it to God because we sound good. We don't give it even though we want to be the best we can be. I still believe that. But it has to be done with an attitude and spirit that says, God, this is all about you. This is all about you today. It's not about me. It's about you. And we say that all the time here. But that, and that's the way that we want it to be. The second expression of ministry that David offered to the Lord and established in his tabernacle was the ministry of musicians with instruments. David also ordained musicians. And again, it had to be people that could play. As much as we find it a hardship to invite people up here to sing that can't sing, it's also a hardship to invite people up here that can't play. Okay, I can play. Watch this. Y'all turn the piano on for me. I don't know how to work it. There's a volume right there. I don't know what that did. All oh, the days for a 
just a good old regular keyboard, huh? But if I got up there and just started banging away and sang Amazing Grace as pretty as I could, it wouldn't really bless anybody because the music part of it would be so offensive. And that's why our musicians, they all work hard, man, and they put everything they have into it. I like to believe and I choose to believe that our musicians are up here to worship God. They're not here as performers. They're not here as entertainers. But they're here to worship. Our singers do that. They come to worship. Our musicians come to play. But the key thing is, is that they know how. And I've been in churches before where people play guitars and they're not tuned. And I don't care how well you can play one. If it's out of tune, it's going to sound horrible. It only takes one string. One out of six will ruin the whole thing. That's why it's important, folks, that we present ourselves to God. Not to be professional and not to be first class and not to be snotty and snobbish and arrogant and whatever else. Our goal here, and this is why I'm teaching this material, this is why we do it the best that we can. Our lighting, they obviously didn't have lighting outside of fire back in those days. There's no electricity and generator and whatever. But I'll tell you what, if we had the budget, I'd fill this church with lights. To do everything I could to show God that we're going we're gonna to throw light all over this building in every direction. I'm not even opposed to those fog machines and anything we can do not to be sensational. Do you realize that the children of Israel, mainly under the direction of David and then Solomon, they spared no expense in Solomon's temple. And it's amazing how we love to preach and gloat over how beautiful and all that it was. But if we do it the same way, something's wrong. I believe the house of God and everything about it should be virtually perfect as we can because God's worthy of that. And I don't want to ever be second class, second rate, too tired, too lazy, don't feel like it when I'm in the presence of God. I want to give God my best every time that I can. And everybody say, man, I hope you understand. I hope everybody here tonight understands. Well, then there was the ministry of the Levites before the ark. The Levites were appointed to minister before the Ark of the Covenant continually. Day by day is every man's work required. This was indeed in great contrast to the order of the tabernacle of Moses. Only the high priest on that great day of atonement ever dared to step into the Holy of Holies and stand before the Ark of God. Then it was in great silence and solemnity. And, and, and any other who dared to presume into the most holy place, judgment would have fallen on them. And, but here in David's tabernacle stood a group of Levites of the priestly tribe. They stood in, in their courses day by day to minister before the ark of the Lord. And it was to be remembered that the tabernacle of David signified this transference of the holiest of all from the tabernacle of Moses to the top of Mount Zion. Thus these Levites had access within the veil. They all had access to the presence of God. They all could do it. They all could participate. Not just one, one time a year, but now it was virtually 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They worship, 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 and ministered in the presence of the Lord. Here's the fourth thing that I find very interesting is David set up a ministry of recording in this setting. Around the Ark of Covenant, he set up Levites in his tabernacle to record 
The word record means to set it down so that it can be remembered. It involved the ministry of the scribe. Many of the Psalms, especially those which concern Zion, must have been, been given by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost in connection with the tabernacle of David. The title of Psalm 80, as well as the whole Psalm, is an example of this. Asaph prayed a prophetic prayer as he stood before the Ark of the Covenant and the shepherd of Israel who dwelt between the cherubims in Psalm 80, verse 1. The Psalms would be recorded by the Levitical scribes and thus set down so that they could be remembered. And what a, a vast treasure would have been lost if the Psalms had not been recorded, if somebody had not bothered to write them down. Moses was the only one who wrote inspired Scripture in relationship to the tabernacle called by his name. Psalms 90 and 91 have been attributed to Moses. In the tabernacle of David, many Levites wrote the Psalms, as well as King David himself. The tabernacle of Moses produced two songs in all those years. And I find it interesting that Psalms is the longest book in the Bible. And it's all an effort. It's all an effort. It's all an effort to give it back to Him. David set up in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, I can give you chapter and verse for all of this, the ministry of thanking the Lord. All of this is going on around the Ark of Covenant. All of this is going on in the presence of God, virtually at the same time. David appointed the Levites to thank the Lord. Many of the Psalms exhort God's people to thank the Lord for His mercy. Giving thanks is an expression of gratefulness and appreciation to the giver of all things. Unthankfulness, the Bible said in the New Testament, is a sign of the last days. Those who were set in the tabernacle of David were to give thanks continually for all things, according to Psalm 116, verse 17, 2 Chronicles 29, verses 30 and 31. Under the tabernacle of Moses, Israel could render a voluntary thank you offering to the Lord. But David said, we're going to step it up a notch. I want somebody around the Ark of Covenant thanking God for everything they can think of 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. We're just going to do it. We're just going to do it. We're going to give God all we've got. We're going to give Him all we've got. We're going to give Him all we've got. You wonder why the priest couldn't minister when the Temple of Solomon was dedicated? This had been going on now for years. And God gave back. And under Solomon's rule for 40 years, they didn't have one problem with an enemy. Not one. Solomon told the Israeli army, Go prop your weapon under a fig tree and sit down and swing and enjoy yourself. And for the next 40 years, they didn't fight one battle. Wonder why. And then David orchestrated the ministry of praise. Part of the order in David's tabernacle was to praise the Lord for his goodness and mercy. There were always Levites in their respective courses praising the Lord. Just... One just needs to check the concordance and count the number of times praise is referenced in the Bible. And you'll find out how important this subject is to God. I'll go ahead and save you the trouble. The word praise is in the Bible 248 times. Just the word praise. Praised is in the Bible 26 times. Praising 10 times. Praise is 29 times. Worship is in there 108 times. Worship is in there 70. Worshiping is in there 5 
It's almost 500 times those two words are mentioned in Scripture. Just in the form that I mentioned to you tonight. Besides all the implications of worship and devotion. You reckon God is serious about this subject? And most of the time when you read the context of where praise and worship is mentioned, it's always done in the parameter of what God commanded. He told them how to shout and when to shout. You don't believe that? Think of the story of Jericho. He said, you march around at one time for six days. On the seventh day, march seven. And on the seventh time, I want you to shout a great shout. And the priests are going to blow the trumpets and watch what happens. He told him to do it. Gideon, with his 300 men, God gave them instruction for that. And you didn't have the person, they're not mentioned if they were there. Out of Gideon's 300, he didn't have 10 that said, well, that's just not my personality to do that. You know, I'm not going to break the picture and shine the light and blow a trumpet. That's just not me. I'm not vogue with that kind of stuff. And besides that, we're trying to win a battle here. And don't you think the whole thing's pretty stupid? We don't even have a weapon. But God gave the commandment. And they did it. And what happened? You can go all the way through the scripture and find one precedent right after another where God dictated the process. And if it was done the way he wanted, there was a tremendous victory on the other side of it. So part of the order in David's tabernacle was to praise the Lord for his goodness and mercy. There were always Levites in their respective courses praising the Lord. They were always there. Did you know it's scriptural to say praise, not say the word praise, but to say praise, to give praise, to utter praise? People say, well, I praise the Lord in my mind. It's scriptural to say it. People struggle receiving the Holy Ghost because they won't open their mouth. You know, they'll come down here and... Well, sooner or later, if you're going to propose to someone to marry you, you'll have to say something. <laughs> More than a grunt. And a look of sincerity and a teardrop. We, you, it's scriptural to say it. You have to say it according to Isaiah 12, 1 and verse 4 and Jeremiah 33, 10 through 12. It's scriptural not only to say praise but to sing praise. The Psalms especially exhort the people of the Lord to sing praise. There are over 70 references in the 150 Psalms. And almost half the Psalms... There's the reference and the command to sing praise. There was no singing of praise in the tabernacle of Moses. And it was all silent order. But in the tabernacle of David, there was that continual 24 hours a day, man, seven days a week, just praise, 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 praise. And do you think, does God ever get tired of that? No, he don't. He inhabits praise. And that's why every battle David fought, when he was right with God, he won it. And his son Solomon, as I just said, had no battles to fight. And, and the countries around them paid tribute to the nation of Israel. Why? Why do you think Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived? Why? Because he was the byproduct of this environment, this atmosphere that David literally created. He was the first prolific byproduct of it. 
As a matter of fact, Michael, who was Saul's daughter, not referenced as David's wife, even though she was, scoffed at David the day the Ark of Covenant was brought back into Jerusalem and made fun of him, and she didn't bear kids after that. Do you all see the correlation here? I wonder where Paul got the idea to tell Silas in the book of Acts, let's just praise the Lord for a while and see what happens. Where did he get that idea from, you think? If we could just understand, especially when we come to the house of God, we have to offer him the ministry of praise. It's not an option. It's not an option. It's not whether we feel like it or not. He's worthy of it, and we should hunger to do that. We should want to do that. It stresses me out when we don't. I, I oftentimes will stand there, and I'm giving it all I've got. I'm yelling as loud as I can. You, of course, you can't hear it with the music and stuff, and it's all good. I implore the praise team oftentimes. I'll just shout, sing it, sing it. I'm not doing that because they sound pretty, even though they do. But that's not why. And I stand there and I pray and I plead with God, please accept this. Please accept it. We're giving it all we've got. And I hope it's just not because it's our way. We're trying to do it in a biblical way. But accept what these people are doing. The people that sit back there every Sunday morning, it's a thankless job. Nobody ever sees them. But they're the ones that steers all of this stuff and, and the sound and the lights and all that. It's not to be pretty in vogue in current church culture and whatever. It's our expression of saying, God, you are absolutely phenomenal and amazing in our lives and in every part of our life, and we wouldn't be worth a dime without you. Our next heartbeat and the next breath we breathe is, is just strictly up to your mercy and grace. So this is our way, and I just hope you like it. I'm not going to bring God weeds when he's expecting flowers. I'm not going to bring him a candy bar when he's expecting a meal. Do you understand the correlation? And a lot of times we gather on Sunday morning and we yawn and stretch all through the worship part of the service and the altar part of the service and we're staring at the watch and completely disinterested. And you say, well, the preaching ain't good enough and the singing ain't good enough. It ain't about the preaching and it ain't about the singing. It's about your hunger for the presence of God. That's what it's about, bottom line. And the Bible says that those that hunger and thirst after Him shall be filled. Well, as long as they go to a church they like and they sing the music they like and they like the preacher and they don't have to give too much in the offering and... It's not what it said. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled with it. It's just based on your hunger. How bad do you want it? How bad do you need it? I need it every day. I need it every day. And I want to live my life every day as worship under Him, a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable, acceptable, acceptable. Not living it the way I want it. And not living it the way the preacher tells me to live it but living my life the way he wants it, whether I like it or not. But I'll do it if I love him. I'll go ahead and do it if I really love him. Well, not nearly done. We have some more expressions of ministry.
to teach in the next ensuing Wednesday night. So I hope you come back for the rest of it. And promote it around our church, folks. Tell somebody Sunday morning, man, I know she wasn't here Wednesday night. Listen to pastor's Bible study on, on the Tabernacle of David. You need to do that. God bless you tonight. I appreciate all of you being here. And I hope our presentation tonight was a blessing and that you understand why we do what we do here. It's not tradition. It's not trying to be cool. I want God to accept it. I want him to be happy with it. When church is over this coming Sunday morning, I'd like to see God somewhere up in heaven saying, boy, that was nice right there, man. Them folks gave it to me. And you know, I like to even think broader than that, that the church is around us and in our city and across our state and all up through the central time zone. We're all doing it at the same time, man. And heaven is just getting bombarded all day long on Sunday with praise and worship. I, I hope he likes it. I hope he likes it. God bless you tonight. Stand with me. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. Father, we love you tonight. And we've done our best to teach and proclaim the word of God. And I, I hope we can be pleasing to you in our worship. You're, you're, you bless our lives every single day. You bless us with breath, with health, food, housing, shelter. We're blessed beyond measure and certainly any worthiness. And it's a delight to be a child of God. And I pray tonight, God, that we can take advantage of our relationship with you, not in the wrong way or the bad way, but to make the most out of it. That we can realize how blessed we are and that we can take our lifestyle, our thoughts, our attitudes, what we give, what we do, we can take all that to the next level and truly live as a sacrifice of praise, as a sacrifice of worship to you. Let our lives, let our lives just be a statement of worship and devotion to you. Bless Grace Church, I pray. And help us to open our hearts in praise and worship. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. amen. Thank the Lord. All right, our guest here tonight, thank you for being here. God bless you. Hope you felt welcome. And we certainly invite you back. You grace folks, go Q8, our guest. Go Q8, everybody. Q8, you know what that means?